Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome everybody, Eddie Trunk here with you, and it's time for another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is new every Thursday via podcastone.com and iTunes. Thank you so much for downloading, streaming, and checking it out, bringing you interviews each and every week, some commentary, some discussion, and here we are now on the Thursday prior to Christmas. Hope everybody has a very, very Merry Christmas, those that are celebrating this coming Monday, and uh, man, it's been a hell of a week. It's been a hell of a year. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a hell of a 2018 because I am just working right till the very end here on 2017. And then right after the new year, literally on New Year's Day, it looks like I'm going to be flying to Florida and getting on a cruise ship on January 2nd to broadcast my volume show from a Moody Blues cruise. Yes, I know some of you may be saying that might appear to be a bit out of my wheelhouse, but respect the Moody Blues, and uh, voted for him, actually, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they are now in, and the good folks that produce their cruise, who also do the Monsters of Rock cruise, and Cruise to the Edge, which I've been involved in, have uh, offered me an opportunity to be on board. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I suspect a tad more relaxing (laughs) than Monsters of Rock is for me. So I'm greatly looking forward to Uh, Maybe getting a little break on top of doing some radio for a few days. And we'll see how that all goes. So, uh, Eddie Trunk Podcast for this Thursday. And, of course, Thursday is our post day. We'll feature an interview with a guy that I've literally known over 30 years. A founding member of the band Anthrax, Scott Ian. We'll get to that interview in just a couple of minutes. Before I do, I want to thank everybody that I met and hung out with in Texas last weekend. I hosted an event at Proof Rooftop Lounge exactly a week ago in Houston. Great venue, really cool spot. As the title would suggest, a rooftop lounge with a great stage and a great great setting and 
L.A. Guns played, who are just on fire, sounding great lately. Chips Enough also turned in a great set with Enough's Enough. I want to thank Justin Ellington, all the people at Proof, for having me out. Really, really cool venue. Hope to be back soon. And they're going to be doing some work on it, putting a retractable roof on there. They do free shows, which is cool as well. So that was a lot of fun on Thursday. And then Saturday, this past Saturday, I was in Dallas at the Bomb Factory, another amazing venue where I had a chance to host a a big rock show that had L.A. Guns and Dokken and Ace Frehley and Dangerous Toys and Graham Bonnet. Enough's enough as well. Good time there. And another amazing venue. Now, the owner there, Clint, has... Bomb Factory, he has trees, he has another new venue he's just opening as well, so he's got a lot of great venues going in Dallas. Had a chance to walk around the Bomb Factory a little bit and uh, check out some of the upper level. Just an amazing place. He's got Judas Priest playing there in April. What a great place to see Priest. Good to see Ace. Hadn't seen him for a little bit. Of course, we're old friends. We had a good chance to catch up. Saw Vinnie Paul there. Got to say hi to him. He was just there as a fan and spectator hanging out. Of course, Vinnie lives in Dallas. Told me new Hell Yeah record is coming soon. And a ton of great fans. So everybody in Houston, everybody in Dallas, thank you. Great weekend, great final road trip. If you're listening to this on post day, I do have one final appearance, and that'll be tomorrow night, Friday, at Dingbats in Clifton, New Jersey. Every year, myself, Don, and Jim, we do a That Metal Show Christmas gathering, even though the show has been off the air now a couple of years. We still get together and have the party, and it is still a blast. It really is. So see everybody Friday night at Dingbats if you're in New Jersey coming out, Clifton, New Jersey, for what's always a fun, fun way to get into the holiday spirit. And then as far as radio is concerned, like I said, I'm working pretty much straight through. I'm doing radio shows the week between Christmas and New Year's, live shows on, uh, let's see, I'll be doing them Tuesday. Well, Monday's Christmas, so Tuesday through Friday. I'll be doing my live volume show, which you can hear on Sirius XM. Channel 106 from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time Live, replaying every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. And on demand on the SiriusXM app, many of the interviews you hear on this show originated on that radio show. Maybe some of you guys that don't have SiriusXM getting it for the holidays and joining me. I hope that certainly is the case. You will not regret it hearing my six shows a week that I produce and do live for SiriusXM, talking rock, doing interviews, playing some music on one of them. So hopefully you uh, you guys come on board if you are not, are not already. So yeah, working all of the week between Christmas and New Year's pretty much. And then you've got New Year's and New Year's Eve and then heading out to, like I said, that cruise for the Moody Blues. And then as we peek into January, I'll be in uh, Orange County, California, the NAM show, the Hall of Heavy Metal History that I'll be hosting once again. That's an award show couple appearances around the big NAM event that happens there every year. And then from there, two more cruises in February. Cruise to the Edge and Monsters of Rock Cruise, both of which I will be on board broadcasting live on Sirius XM. So it's a very, very, very little downtime for me. Not complaining. Good to be busy. And I'm glad to have all your support for all the various things that I do. Excited looking into next year as well for the premiere of my brand new TV show coming on Access TV called Trunk Fest covering music festivals, and we'll be shooting more of those coming soon in the new year as well. So great stuff ahead, great stuff in 2017. Thank you for uh, enjoying it with me and 
like I said, giving uh, giving me all that support. By the way, there is a sale going on in the merch store on eddytrunk.com. A couple more days left, 25% off everything in the store, Trunk Nation shirts and much more. Have a look when you get a chance. Probably too late to get it to you for Christmas, but makes a good gift for a day or two after and you still get that Christmas pricing. While you're on my site, Music News, you can email me through the site, eddie at eddietrunk.com. All my appearances as they come in and are confirmed on the homepage of the website as well. And social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And don't forget, speaking of shopping, if you shop on Amazon, be sure to do it by starting on my page, amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Items hand-selected by me, and go anywhere else from that page on the site to do your shopping. Just always start at amazon.com slash shop slash Eddie Trunk. Helps us out, and I do appreciate you doing that. The interview right now that you're about to hear is a visit with, as I mentioned, an old friend, Scott Ian, founding member of one of the big four, Anthrax. I've literally known Scott now for over 30 years had unbelievable times and experiences with him all around the world. We kind of grew up together. We really did. And we were all bonded as kids by our love of Kiss. And Scott has a brand new book out, his second. And it's called Access All Areas, Stories from a Hard Rock Life. And unlike Scott's first book, which is was an autobiography, this book is really more exactly as the title would suggest, random stories. And the second story in the book is about him seeing Kiss for the first time at the same time I did. Although it was back in 1977, I didn't know Scott at that time, but we went to the same first show two days apart. And it's a it's a great story of, of many that are in his uh, brand new book. So we talk about that book. We talk about some of the stories in it. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation with Scott Ian of Anthrax. He is my guest this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which, as always, is produced by Katie Irizarry and available totally free podcast one.com or iTunes. Let's get a little break in. We'll come back and we'll be joined by Scotty in this week. Enjoy the conversation coming up. I think you will. The Eddie trunk podcast. So here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Here's another tip you also might not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With the True Car Certified Dealer Network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you can enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with True Car Certified Dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, Check out True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. 
If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We're back, the Eddie Trunk Podcast. My guest this week, Scott Ian of Anthrax. Enjoy. Good to see you, man. Good. Hey, good to see you. you uh, Thank you. You are here in, you, you live in uh, Southern California now, and you're visiting New York in ice and snow and cold. Yeah, we went from fire to literally fire and to ice. Did, yeah, did you, anything by you with the fires? You all right over there? It was close. We, we dodged a bullet. Um, we were... Uh, the winds cooperated, and uh, we didn't have to evacuate. We were ready, though. Our car was literally packed. I had guitars taken out of my house, and wow. like we were ready to go. Like all, like our fire insurance and mortgage information, all that crap in the car, and boxes of books and suitcases, and we were ready to go. What's going on there now? I didn't see anything today. Is things have things calmed down a little bit? Have they gotten a handle on it? Or that specific fire, the Skirball fire, which was the one like kind of right in L.A. Yeah, that one. I think that one's pretty much done. The one up in Ventura is the really bad one. I, I think it's called the Thomas fire. It's a, that's. I mean, it's it's really bad when you're starting to name fires. You know, the, the this fire, the that fire. I mean, it's just yeah. when there's that many of them that they have different names. It's, well, it was like four of them burning at once, kind of surrounding L.A. And for two days, it was crazy. I mean, the air was it was really bad. Our lungs were hurting, and uh, it just it was this thick fog, and it was snowing ash, and it's just very strange when that happens. Yeah, yeah, I can't even imagine. We'll send in our best to everybody dealing with that. Of course, in California right now, just seeing some of it on the news, it's just surreal and just brutal. Um, we uh, we got a lot to talk about, obviously, but you're here to promote a book and, and all that. But before we do, can you say on the air the story you just told me off the air about about the? Oh, fire? I don't know. That was Chris's thing, so I, but I don't it's know. Funny. If I, it's, should... I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just funny. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, if he wants to tell it. <laughs> Chris can tell. Jericho would definitely tell it. Yeah, I mean, it's his. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll leave it at that. All right. But there's a funny moment related to, uh, to, to let's just, well. <laughs> leave it at yeah, that. Yeah, leave it at that. There's a funny moment. Chris, if you're listening, call in. <laughs> yeah, he can, he can tell us about it. Uh, so you got another book here, man. Yes. Access All Areas, your second book, Stories from a Hard Rock Life. Of course, you wrote your first book, I'm the Man, came out how long ago? A few years ago, A couple now, right? years ago, yeah. How long, yeah. Did you know immediately you wanted to do another book at that point after you did the first one? I kind of I knew as the autobiography was being done, I kind of knew because there were so many stories that I couldn't fit into – the framework of an autobiography because you know you're kind of telling this you know my life story is being told and then to go off on a 70 page tangent on me playing professional poker for four <laughs> years it kind of takes you out of the story too much and then to bring it back in and so that this book the new book has 23 stories that for me just really didn't or weren't going to fit into the just the flow of the autobiography that's the thing. When you're writing an autobiography, you have to kind of do it in a linear fashion. You have to kind of go and in, in, sure and in, tell that. I mean, I guess it. you don't have to, but it, you know, the good ones are though. Yeah, and uh, and I just knew I had so many other stories to tell, so I would I would make notes. I mean, I would literally like have these notes in my iPhone that I would go through. It'd say like Kirk's door, you know, like that would be. Oh yeah, I got to remember to write that story, you know that. 
that crazy story with Metallica, or you know, just meet me under Ace Freely, the one of the titles of story. Oh yeah, we're gonna get into that yeah. in, in the book. That was I've had that title forever. You know, as I gotta write that story. You know, so I, um, once I'm the man was out, it did well enough to get me a second book, honestly, and. Uh, and uh, they asked me, and I said, "Yeah, I, ha- I have an idea. I've got all these great stories." That and it was that was it. It was a go. Were you um, looking back on the first book before we talk about this one? Were you happy with it in retrospect? Oh, the yeah. Things you would have liked to have changed, added, taken out. Did you get blowback on anything that you wrote in there? Things you maybe wish you didn't reveal? Th- anything like that? Or are you, you good with everything in there? I was. I'm good with everything. Um, you know the weird thing, and and I mean you have books out, so you you may or may not have been through this. But you, when you write a book, then the publisher takes your finished copy of it and they send it to their lawyers. And then the lawyers read it, and then the lawyers will make their suggestions on changes they think you should make in order to keep yourself, uh, you know, not being sued, basically. They're like, unless you don't mind possibly getting sued by somebody, maybe you should change, in this part, you should change this person's name, or maybe you want to say this differently about this experience. or So they'll just give you their suggestions. They're not telling you, change it. It's just up to you. They're basically letting you know that you're probably going to get sued by so-and-so if you keep their name in the book. And I learned that um, basically people that aren't in the public eye have an expectation of privacy. So, like, if you say you talk about someone in a story from your past and maybe you talk about something they did, drug use or whatever it may be that uh, they, they never wanted out there, well, they have an expectation of privacy, and then, of course, they could come after you for that. But if it's someone in the public eye and you're telling a story about, then that it's so weird that that expectation of privacy kind of goes out the window. And um, uh, so I changed names. <laughs> it's basically In the what, first book. Yeah, in the first book, there's some names that are, that are changed in there, which, I, you know, is annoying to me, you know, to have to do that because... Uh, I'm writing my my story. I want to be as honest as I can be. Right. I also don't want to then spend the next 10 years of my life paying f- for some stupid stories I wrote in a book. Right. Nobody's excited to hear the words, well, you might be sued, yeah. but and, you know, changing a word to prevent potentially that happening, exactly. so not that a big w- deal. That, w- that was something I learned from the experience of the first book, certainly, and I, I wish I could have just said, you know, screw it. I, I'm, I, I, I'm not, care. I don't care. But, you know, I, I just I'm not in a position to, you know, to have to deal with that for forever. So uh, we've have we have enough litigation sometimes in the context of the band, just frivolous lawsuits and whatnot over the years. And even when you win, you lose because you've just spent 40 grand on a lawyer. You know what I mean? So yeah. and you, there's no way to get that back. So um, it's just something I tried not I. I like throwing parties, but the last thing I ever want to do is throw a party and invite a bunch of lawsuits. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's something people don't understand, too, is is that even if it is frivolous, it still costs money, you know, coming out of your pocket. I'll never forget if, God, probably eight, ten years ago, uh, leaving. speaking of leaving names out, I'm going to intentionally leave the name out here, but somebody you and I both know, uh, that there was a threat of a, it's just so, the most ridiculous thing ever, a threat of some sort of... Um, suit 
against me for potentially booking an artist. Mm-hmm. Most ridiculous thing. Yes, it's that ridiculous. Right. Yeah, but yeah. it was one of those things where this person just got off on putting a scare into somebody or just got off on potentially suing them or threatening suits so that they could just get their way. Sure. And I was just like, well, that's it's so baseless and ridiculous. But like, yeah, but th- they'll do it just to... You know, to take 20, 30 grand out of your pocket to of have course. to fight it. And I'm like, wow, that is really some fucked up shit. Oh, yeah. Like, I never even thought of There's it. There's people that. who just make their livings doing that. What's been <laughs> what's been in the history of you and Anthrax, what's been the most frivolous, ridiculous thing? Can you talk about it? Like, did somebody try to sue you? There's because- one really recently that I cannot talk about on air. Um uh, And I'll tell you afterwards. But if you want to go way back to 1988... uh Anthrax was opening for Ozzy on that tour in the, the like fall and winter of '88, and I, I if I remember correctly, we did two nights at the Long Beach Arena, like December 30th and 31st of '88, and one of those nights, a fan uh, jumped down from like higher up seats, like hopped over a railing and jumped down to try and get down closer or to the floor or something, right. and broke broke his leg, broke a bone, and. Um, it was weeks after the tour was over, and this guy, like, they sued everybody. They sued Anthrax, they sued Ozzy, they sued the promoter, they sued the arena, they sued Coca-Cola for selling Coca-Cola in the arena, they they sue everybody. Sounds like the Jerky Boys. Sue, yeah, sue everybody. Sue everybody. <laughs> they literally did, though, and we're like, first of all, it didn't even, it happened during Ozzy's set, you know, so we're like, how are we being sued here? Like, how is this, this is crazy. And he, it's not like Ozzy got on stage and yelled and said, everybody jump down. Right. He, he never said those words to the crowd, but it's what people do. And, you know, this is as far back as 1988. And I think even that ended up costing us about 10 grand. Because so you actually we had, had to, to defend that. Yeah, we, you get, you get you know, whatever it is, you officially get served and you have to hire a lawyer and you have to reply and... And all that, and great. That was it. It got the case against us got dropped. I don't know if it ever got any further against anyone else, but I mean, just stuff like that. A million years ago, we used um, we used uh, artwork from the VHS uh, box of the movie Raging Bull, which had De Niro's face on it, right? And in '94, I think it might have been, we just had we used that image on a backdrop. Uh, on stage, we also had it on our laminated passes and on our itineraries, our, our itinerary books that we had on tour. We weren't selling any merch or anything like that with De Niro's image. Right. It was just we we used it as a backdrop on our laminates, and uh, we got a cease and desist. I, I forget it. It was from like United Artists, I think, who owned that. And uh, fine, so we stopped. We stopped using the backdrop, even though our lawyer replied and says we're not selling anything. It's just uh, it doesn't matter. And then they came after us for a hundred grand, even though we we weren't making a dime off it. And it turned out the reason they came after us is because a promoter, I believe in L.A., who was promoting the L.A. gig on that tour, used that image in an ad in the paper. Uh, to advertise the show, and now it became like a. It was now commercial because it was in the newspaper with that image along with our logo, and and we ended up having to settle. And if I remember correctly, that was somewhere around twenty or thirty grand. So that was like a really expensive wow. <laughs> version of Raging Bull. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. That is, I mean. When you but when the the thing happens like with the guy jumping and going after you, and I know we're getting off on a whole other thing. We're going to talk about the book in a second, but it, you can't 
counter back. Like you can't like because it's so frivolous. You, can. you can't go back you for can. the for the damages. Yeah, well, you can, but most of the time people don't have a pot to piss in. They're just looking looking to make a dime somehow, and uh, you can go after it. But if they have nothing, and then you're spending more money on your right, lawyer right. to go after nothing, you're just spending money. We've had to settle so many things over the years because our lawyer is least honest with us and says it's going to cost you more to right. pay me than it is to just settle this right now. We know you you don't want to give whoever it may be a dime out of principle because you're in the right and you know you're in the right but it's better to spend 5 grand now than 50 grand later you know it's just and that's really what it comes down to most of the time people know people will settle lawsuits and it's like so this is like should be on a different channel here we're like no but, but it's interesting people it's- should people know that bands and companies will a lot of times will settle like because it's just going to cost them more in the long run to keep keep something going. And in all the years, anybody who's ever seen Anthrax live knows that the shows, if you're in that crowd, can be very aggressive, especially in the early years in the clubs, the moshing, the stage diving, all the stuff that went sure. on. When people got banged up back then, did anybody of those people ever try to come after you because they were banged up in the pit? Not in the early days, no. There was a sense of responsibility in the audience where it was kind of, you knew what you were getting yourself into. Um I think the first people back in the 80s when the mosh pits really started to get, you know, go from small clubs to the bigger level of shows and uh, kids were stage diving and stuff, I think it was the promoters and the venues that were getting hit first with lawsuits because a lot of people were breaking arms and noses and legs and people were getting landed on by people stage diving and they were getting hurt so they would sue the venue or... And then that's why... Barricades went up and stage diving was, you know, they put the kibosh on that pretty quickly because nobody wants to get sued, you know. And, uh, and it, you know, we were always pissed off at people who would do that, come to a show, know what they're getting into, get on stage, jump off a stage, hurt themselves, and then turn around and sue the people that, you know, that they supposedly are fans of or respect or you know that was always a bummer, and then of course it just got completely out of hand, and it, like they really cracked down on all that stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it used to happen back then, um, but not right in the beginning, not in the early early days. No, nobody even thought twice about. They would never sue the band or a venue that they loved seeing shows at. Nobody would right. ever do that. Yeah, uh, Scott Ian's book is called Access All Areas. We're going to get into some specific stories and more about this book uh, in just a few seconds. Actually, we've got to hit a break in a minute. But last thing before we go to break and come back and talk about the book some, it, what's your take? Because this has been a big topic of discussion on my show over the course of the last few months because there's always stories about it coming out. Maynard from Perfect Circle and Tool just had people thrown out because they were doing it. The whole cell phones at concerts. Uh, I mean, I just went to a show, Troubadour in L.A., Stone Temple Pilots' first show with their new singer. And they were doing this thing where everybody had to put their phones in these bags. You yeah. couldn't use them. And I had the CEO of the company that developed those bags on this show a couple weeks ago. I, someone just told me they saw Dave Chappelle at Radio City. It was the same thing. Well, it started with comedians. This right. company, because comedians don't want their material out and people knowing the jokes. It makes sense. But now artists are using it. So this company, Yonder, in the in the Bay Area, this, the CEO was on with me a week and a half ago talking about why he developed it. His his reason for developing it was actually pretty interesting. It was it's not wasn't what I thought it would be, um, but 
where's you you know you've been on stages playing ever sure. your whole life i mean this is a, a thing now some people it bothers some people they don't care go for it what's your take uh, as a uh, m- the only way i really look at it when i'm on stage i don't care i'm not paying attention at all i'm i'm completely focused on what i'm doing in the context of the show that i'm putting on and just trying to make sure that i'm giving the audience everything that i want to give them i i I really am not paying attention at all to what's going on out there. Like we were just in South America when kids are shooting road flares up in the middle of the mosh pit. That I can see and it catches my eye and it's on my radar. But anything else going on really, it's kind of completely off my radar because I'm so focused. As a fan going to shows, right. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I, I think it's the dumbest thing in the world that you're going to a concert and then you're experiencing it through a two-inch screen or whatever your phone may be now. I think I hate it from a fan point of view, and everyone should put the fucking phones away. And I agree. And I, I would love to only go to shows where they make people put their phones away. You're taking shitty pictures to post on your Insta, your shitty out-of-focus photos that nobody cares about. Shitty videos that sound terrible that what you're going to sit home and watch these like I mean, I, I don't understand from a fan point of view. I hate it as a guy in a band. I really don't give a shit. Right. So I, I don't care. You would never for your own shows for anthrax shows institute the, the phone lockup plan because it doesn't bother you. But as no. a fan going to shows exactly and it being around you, it bothers. I know. You. I know that kind of sounds like I'm contradicting myself. Uh, not really. I understand it because because if you're on stage performing, you don't give a shit. It, I don't give a shit. It doesn't right. bother me. It's not it's not changing my experience right. on stage in the band. If somehow it started to change my experience. Um, yeah. Granted, I see the phones out there. Yes, I, I I'm not completely blind. And I do think people would be better served experiencing the show with their own eyes and ears and not worrying about filming the concert. But uh, um, I don't care when I'm on stage. But, yeah, as a fan, we were at Guns N' Roses at the Forum last week. And, uh, there, you know, there were times where I felt like 10,000 people had phones up in the air taking pictures. It's just like, what are you doing? You're not even paying attention to the band. You're paying attention to what you're doing with your phone. People, they're so addicted to their fucking phones. They can't put it down for two minutes. Yeah. I can see, my take on it is, I can see you want to snap a couple quick pictures throughout the course of a two-hour show. Once or twice, you take a photo. I get it. That's okay. Even if you want to take 30 seconds of video of a certain moment, I get it. That's okay. But the people that are out there doing it the whole time, shooting the whole show, waving these it's things, so and everyone looking around, it's really, 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 uh, really distracting. And People say to me sometimes they're like uh, they're like well we follow you and you send stuff out well yeah a couple things first of all that's kind of my job I'm the conduit to put this stuff out right. secondly I never do it ever if I'm in a position where I'm blocking or distracting anyone around me right. I'm fortunate enough that because of what I do when I go to shows I'm usually in the wings of a stage yeah. or I'm watching at a, at the soundboard where there's nobody behind me but a wall mm-hmm. that nobody's being bothered there's absolutely no impact to anyone around I'm always cognizant of that sure. I just saw Alter Bridge the other day in Tulsa and I gotta say that audience uh, at the Canes Ballroom and that audience was great there was like the people around me I was right on the floor with everybody a couple people would just go up take a quick photo or whatever it was fine nobody but you see these people coming with iPads and shit. Oh, and my like, God. What are you doing, yeah, man? It's really it's too much. Yeah, it really is. I keep saying we're going to talk specifically about the book in a second, and we are. 
But I'm just realizing also that in five minutes we're going to have to hit another break, and then we'll have a, a clear hour or a, a more balanced hour. Right. So until we until until then, we'll get specifically into the book in a second. In a second, but we we should mention so we don't forget today a press release came out about a new Anthrax release coming out for all Kings live from was it Sweden or? Glasgow Scotland Scotland Kings Kings among Scotland. So it's a live concert film, right? Yes, we we shot it last February on our headline run over there, um, and we picked Glasgow specifically because, again, like when we shot in Chile a couple of years ago, we did that Chile on Hell show to document that run. Right. We always try and pick a place where we know we won't have to worry about the crowd reaction. So we take that anxiety or worry out of the mix. Then we really only have to worry about us not screwing up you know, on stage or any tech possible technical issues. Um, and we've just always had amazing shows in Scotland going back to 86 when we supported Metallica at the Edinburgh Playhouse. And we just have a long, long history with the Scottish fans, and they're a great, great audience. And we figured on that run, that would be the, the perfect show to shoot. And the set, did you do among start to finish? Is that what you did? It's We did it in, um, we were doing two two sets we kind of looked at it almost like a soccer match where we, we played the first half, um, which was a kind of a set of greatest, whatever, a normal set, like right. an hour set, normal hour set of, of songs throughout the every record except for Among the Living. And then we would take a 15-minute break while they reset the stage because we had different production for both. This was like the biggest thing we've done in, in a by the way, in a really long time, we had different production for both sets, like real production with staging and lights and smoke and all yeah, kinds of crap. Yeah, when the time you were doing it, your your agent and our mutual friend Mike Montrulo was showing me pictures of it. Right. He's like, yeah, look, look at this. So, so you actually yeah, brought in- Yeah, and we'd break 15 minutes, the crew would reset the stage, and then we'd come back out and do a mung. But we didn't do it, um, we didn't do it in order, because we, we qu- kind of quickly found out working on, uh, playing that uh, record- I think at the beginning of the run, we were playing it in order, and then we realized that the sequence of the record that works on a record doesn't necessarily work in a live scenario. So we just kind of changed the order of the songs up to make it dynamically work better live. But yeah, we played you know but all, you played all the songs, everything. What was what for? Because you do play a lot of that record and have for a long time, obviously live. But for you. Doing that, what were the songs that were maybe the most challenging or that you had the most fun playing that you didn't play in a long time? Imitation of Life, yeah. the, the last song, Nine. Um, it, that, even back in the day, we barely played that song. E- even, you know, I, I don't even think it ever made it through a complete tour back in 87 or 88. Um, definitely played the least of any song on that record. One World probably being the next one that was the least played even back in the 80s. So those two, for me, were the most fun because it almost felt like we were playing new new songs. Um, those are great. Horror of It All, another one obviously not played nearly as much as songs like Indians and right. and, and whatnot. So um, getting to play those songs, uh, it's great. I, especially for me, Imitation of Life, because 
um, we've hardly played that song, and it's a song I would still like to play even if we're not doing Among the Living, you know? And we were talking about, uh, and we're going to start the conversation about Scott's book with, of course, our all, all our points of reference for, for when we grew up, and that's Kiss. But we were talking about the cover for this DVD, which is coming out when? When is the Blu-ray DVD coming out? Uh, I the, think it said April 20. So it's a little ways down the yeah. line. But the cover is a takeoff on Rock and Roll Over. By Kiss. Yes, we are definitely paying homage to, you know, our, one of our favorite bands of all time. But yes. you had to get permission for that, or you did? or what, We what did. Happened? Well, out of respect, really, it was kind of like, all right, you know, you, you can see the artwork now. It's out there online. Um, so you, you'll see it and say, okay, yeah, I get it. It kind of looks like rock and roll over. That's what, we're, what we were going for. With your for. beard as the jeans tongue. My beard as the tongue, yeah. <laughs> but out of respect, I mean, we've known the guys... We've known Gene and Paul since 1987, and uh, I, I have a, an actual f- friendship with Gene, you know. And uh, um, so I, I wrote him. I, I just I emailed him with the art and I w- say, we're asking you permission, you know, if this is cool. And, and they gave us permission. And it's just another one of those moments. Like that guy, uh, Gene specifically, has kind of gone above and beyond for me so many times since I've known him in 30 years, like just gone out of his way when he clearly didn't have to for whatever reason and uh, really just has gone out of his way so many times and you know, just the heart of gold on that dude. And it's uh, it's got to be, you know, you take a like the statement you just said, if you remove yourself from Scott Ian on December 11th, 2017, and you put yourself in the place of Scott Ian in the first chapter of your new book, uh, that that's a pretty surreal statement. What you just said, the Scott Ian that opens your new book. If he were say, knew it was going to be saying, that. I know, but still, I am not that far removed. <laughs> I, I save I save every email I get from him. I have an archive of Gene Simmons emails. First book, you had a co-writer, John Wiederhorn, right? Yes. Did yes. you do this one all yourself? All myself. Yeah. How'd that go? It went great. Yeah, it's a. It's a shit ton of work. It is. But, uh, yeah, it it went great. I did have my moments, you know. You, I'd get in a great flow, and I'd get a lot of work done over, like, two, three weeks. And and then all of a sudden, the well just kind of runs dry, and, and everything everything's, like, just crap, and anything I was trying to write would suck. And I'd go through periods of that for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, bang, I would... You know, so it was kind of like that on and off for a year in, until it was done. Did you write on the road, or did you have some? To... Yeah, yeah, all over. I mean, we were on tour a lot over the last eighteen months. So yeah, a lot of it was written in hotel rooms and on tour buses and in dressing rooms. And so yeah. you you just would uh, because the reason why I'm asking this is because and you have a copy right here. Bruce, I just had Bruce Dickinson on recently. Right, his book just came out. Do you know that Bruce wrote his entire book by himself, and that's a big book. By hand, I'm on, sure, with pen and paper, while he was on... fencing with the other hand and flying a <laughs> plane <laughs> with his feet. I, if you told me that, I'd say, of course he was. <laughs> like with a with like a pin with one of those pens you dip in ink. Yes, not even a, a ballpoint yeah, a quill. Quill like just <laughs> on writing on papyrus from ancient Egypt. <laughs> papyrus scrolls. Of course he did. Yeah, absolutely. So. um the biggest problem, like, you would have time on the road because a lot of times you're traveling, so I'm sure that made it a little bit easier. Because well, touring is hurry up and wait. Right. You, you, you're at a venue all day or in a hotel room all day sitting around waiting for the show. So, 
I just tried to use that time as constructively as as possible, and uh, and I did. I was able to do it. I was able to somehow because generally I, I can't get anything done on the road other than playing shows because I'm in such a f- mindset of touring and playing gigs, and it kind of makes it hard to work on anything else. But this was so different to that that it would kind of like it was like a real great escape for me to sit in a room and. Uh, spend four hours writing with just headphones on listening to music and spend like four hours working on stories and then like show up at the venue and be so excited like to get out of that zone and now I get to go on stage and it actually it it made the the days go much faster yeah see the biggest problem for me with books is as you mentioned before I, I put out two but both of those books are just like more photos and stories I'm actually have the last couple of years have been writing my story right like, 35 years in this business and I'm like half through it but the difference is when I did my first two books, I had a deal for them in advance, a publishing deal, sure. right? So the, my editor gave me hard deadlines where mm. I, it forced me to have to deliver certain stuff by certain times. This one I'm writing first and then going to see who wants to put it out. Right. So I have nobody cracking the whip. And makes it made hard. it so difficult for me to commit to sitting down sure. and doing it. Even if I'm on a plane and I'm like, well, now would be a good time to knock out a couple hours. like... Ah, this movie's on. I'd rather throw the headphones on. I just can't. Yeah, I can't find the focus. To uh, even do it. even with deadlines looming, sometimes it's hard. I, I know. I, I my deadline on this book got moved three times because I just wasn't done. I, I felt like I wasn't ready yet. It, the book wasn't ready yet, and uh, and they were super cool about that. It's, it was supposed to come out. This was supposed to come out originally. I think back in the spring of, of this year, but I just I was like, no, 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 no. It's it's not ready yet needs a little more time in the oven so the book is out finally tomorrow i want to go through a couple things in here and a few stories in this book because when you and i were texting about uh, this book coming out you had said to me the first or second chapter was going to be one i was going to be able to completely connect yes. to. but before we get to that one the the opening the opening chapter is called bald of confusion bald of confusion yes you care to elaborate on that a little bit well with the it's, audience? A pl- it's a play on the song title ball of confusion right but yeah it's which you covered by the way we right? did with joey and john joey and I john that. little known fact in, in of course in I, yeah. thrackstery yeah that that was a there is an there is an anthrax song with joey belladonna and john bush on it yes. together and it's that it's a cover of ball of confusion yes and it's it's actually quite good greater of the two evils <laughs> right wasn't that the that was the. I th- it wasn't on Greater Two Evils. I think it came out on that Return of the Killer A's or yes, something like that. Yes, the compilation is yes. the one new track. Yes, it's it's hard to find. It's I, hard uh, to find. Yeah, that's that's a historic Anthrax moment. Yeah, yeah, the only time ever. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, there's your Anthrax fun fact for the day. <laughs> I, I something tells me you're not going to do another uh, an interview for this book with anybody else who's going to call. I that. know exactly. <laughs> My God, I'm such a geek. But anyway, bald of confusion. What's yeah? The story it's there? just kind of the I, I, sets a, things up a little. Yeah, this the bald of confusion thing was. It was kind of a bit I was doing in my live talking shows, where I would come on stage and introduce myself to the audience and basically saying, I've, "I understand. You all know who I am. You wouldn't be here sitting here." in an audience at a Scott Ian talking show if you didn't know who I was. <laughs> but then I get into this whole thing on how over the years, my many years being in a band, I've been confused for many, many other people in other bands, including guys in my own band. You know, I talk about it, how I can't tell you how many times I get asked, right today it'll probably happen, aren't you the singer, the singer of Anthrax? Right. 
aren't you the bass player of Anthrax? And now, look, I understand people just get confused, especially the casual listener who's not like online uh, reading, you know, metal sites every day. It's just people who've seen me on TV, maybe, and they assume I'm the singer because I must be the front man. If well, well seen let's me. be honest, though. You are the most identifiable guy in the band. And I, I don't it. I don't mean that no. with any disrespect to anybody in the band because I get it. you're all great friends. But you, you have been, you over the years, you became the of face course. of the band. No, I, I get it. I talk about it. I'm extremely recognizable with the I've got this stubbly egg for a head, and the the beard's coming off my chin. And but you you are extremely recognizable. But you are also the guy that the journalists and everybody you you're the the, the voice of the band yes. for the most part, and you're on the most of the magazine covers and the photos. And it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Of it's course. like that with every band. Every band has one or two guys. I, I know. I know. Well, know. I, t- I talk about it yeah. in the story. And let's be clear. I mean, Joey and Frankie both have long flowing locks, and <laughs> I do not. So it's just always funny to me, you know. I, I just, I sometimes I I just can't be that simple and just answer the question. I I have to take it deeper, and and that's what the ball the confusion thing is all about. I also tell some stories in that story about friends of mine in other bands who have beards. I get into the whole beard thing and how people feel like they just have the right to get their hands up in your beard if you have one. People will walk That's up to you in the street. That's bizarre to me. I read that and I found that bizarre. Yeah, it, like that would not be time. something I would even consider doing. At least to some somebody. people will ask. They'll say, "Hey man, can I dudes, hey man, That's fucked up. Hey man, can I can I grab your beard?" No. And then they yeah. kind of get weird that you say no. Like they had an expectation that you were going I'm going to stand there and let some dude cur- like put his run his fingers I through my beard. I would never ever even think no, of that. No, me neither. Like, Billy Gibbons was here a week I know. ago. Did you want to... On this show, I never in a minute had the inclination to want to reach over and touch his beard. Just kind of run your fingers and through his And that's the architect beard. of rock beards. Of course. So I talk about Carrie and Zach in my story, and, and uh, you know... You should read it. It's it's pretty funny. Well, let me because that's the other thing too. When you say pretty funny, I mean you take you have a great sense of humor about all this stuff. There's some really funny things. Like like I'm just re- like as far as let me read this to you from Scott's book. It says Zach Wild with his all father Odin beard wins when it comes to beards. His beard is like a rope that they used to tie cruise ships to the dock. It's truly the king of beards, and why wouldn't he want to show it off? So if you ever have the chance to hang with Zach, grab onto that bridge cable of a beard and yank it hard. He's a big guy, so you may even want to use two hands to pull on it so he feels it. And then I go on to say, I think there's maybe an asterisk. By or the way, that, yes. this is top secret, behind the scenes info that will keep just between us, okay? I wouldn't want this to get out there publicly, and then everyone will be all over those guys even worse than they are now. Yeah, but I also go on to say, do not, that I'm only kidding, do not pull Zach's beard. Never touch Zach's beard because he will pound you into the floor like a nail. And he's really, so. yeah, he's really all bulked <laughs> up now, so forget about it. He's on more roids than ever, so look out. Um, the other thing, the next chapter in the book, the, t- the headline of the chapter, the title is Meet Me Under Ace Freely. Yes. Now, I immediately knew what that meant because I grew up here like you did. Right. And I met my friends under Ace Freely yep. countless times. Sure. I was devastated the day I went to Madison Square Garden and found out that 
Meet Me Under Ace Freely had been replaced by Billy Joel at a piano. Yeah. It gutted me that yeah. day. That was a day that I will never, ever forget. But since we have a national broadcast here, and there's probably plenty of people listening that have never been to Madison Square Garden in the, uh, in the late 70s, explain Meet Me Under Ace Freely. In front of Madison Square Garden, right off of 7th Avenue, was the entrance to Penn Station, the train, big, one of the big train stations here in New York, and uh, where the escalators would go down. And Still on, like that. Yeah, still way. like yeah. that. And on the side of this entrance, uh, because it was also right at the entrance of Madison Square Garden, so on the side of this entrance, they had these big photos, these kind of giant framed photos of artists or uh, things, acts that had performed. Like I'm pretty sure at the time there was Ace Freely, you know, with the the whole rat. I th- believe it was a Mark Weiss shot of him with the smoking guitar. I think there was like Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Maybe was another photo, and I don't remember what the third one was. It was like circus. Con- like it, it, each photo, maybe rep- hockey or yeah, basketball. Each photo represented the things, things that go the garden on. were known yeah. for. So I think my, it might have been. It was definitely like a Rangers picture, a Knicks picture, the, the circus, circus, and, and Ace Freely. There may have even been a boxing picture. <laughs> yeah, there might have been. Yeah. And then the, to represent concerts and the music there, it was a picture of Ace Which, with a smoking guitar. For us as kids, oh. in the the late seventies, was the coolest thing in the world to see Beyond. the lead guitar player in our favorite band, right there on Seventh Avenue, amongst all that other stuff. Like it was just. You know, it was so amazing that it was Ace Freely up there. It was just by the, the way, coolest I, thing. By the, by the way, um, I, I wonder now, thinking about that in retrospect, like if that caused any drama. Oh, we used to think about Gene, that all the Paul time. With Paul, and Peter, yeah. that instead of a band shot, it was just Ace. It was just Ace. I mean, because four guys from New York yeah. forever entrenched on, in the front of Madison Square Garden, and it's one guy, not all Even four. Even for me as a kid, and Gene was my favorite guy. Gene was my guy in the band from when I first got into Kiss. I was actually surprised. Like, I'm surprised it's not Gene with the blood or the fire. Maybe that's too much to put out oh, yeah. there on 7th Avenue. So they went with Ace because it's, it's still like you got the smoking guitar, so it's showing something really kind of different than just like Jimmy Page standing there. You would have thought maybe it would have been a Zeppelin photo because they had played the Garden so York many band. times. But yeah, right. Kiss is New York. New York band. Right. Yeah. right. So, so, so we used to meet. So, so what's your story in, in, in the book? So tell, t- t- pick it up from there. Like, well, well basically the, the chapter is, and, and I read, I read about, like I said, about half or three quarters of the book, but of course I read that chapter right. and it resonated so much with me. Because uh, growing up, a KISS fan, like, coming in from New Jersey on that train, right. coming up, like, what it meant to me. But but really, meeting under Ace Freely is just a part of that chapter. The bigger thing is just about how KISS and that moment of getting a ticket yeah. and, and you going to the record store and waiting for the tickets and getting your first record, how that basically shaped your whole life. Yeah, it, I'm really trying to, or what I was trying to get across, I was trying to really give people a visualization of what my life was 1975, 76, 77. You know, like those years, just even be like kind of pre-Kiss as a kid and like just what New York City was like on a daily basis for me grow- growing up and like what I was dealing with and then Kiss came into my life 
And it really did change everything for me. It was the first thing. I mean, I was a big sports fan. I was already a Yankees fan at the time. And I was a comic book fan. But Kiss was the first thing that I I have to say I truly worshipped as a kid. Because it just took so much horror, comics, music. It took all of that and it wrapped it up in, you know, a fiery, bloody box for me. And, you know, it just, it really just hit me in my, right, right in the balls, you know. Um, I fell in love with it, and I really worshipped it. And, you know, and I'm just trying to, at the same time, show a picture of what New York City was like. And as kids, what you had to deal with then as compared to now, as far as even finding out if a concert was coming to your right. town and how it all worked and waiting in line. And that just that whole experience of 1977 and being 13 years old and going to your first Kiss concert without parental supervision, right. with just your friends in Manhattan – um, you know, it's. I, I tried to make it very visual and, um, you know, almost like you're watching a movie about a bunch of 13, like Stranger Things without the, without the monsters. <laughs> Stranger Things with Gene Simmons instead of a monster. <laughs> but that's exactly what it did for me because having literally almost had a parallel experience right. reading the book and reading that section of the book and, and having had Kiss had the same impact on me. I mean, you and I are not unique in that. Kiss right, had of a massive influence like there that on so many. 10 million other kids exactly yeah. like us in that moment. But what you really did with that chapter is you did put everybody in the time and place. Like, I think today it's so easy to think like, oh, how do you get tickets? Well, you go on your computer and you punch them out. Yeah. No, you would go to Corvettes or yeah. to the record store and you would talk to that you guy working them. the Ticketmaster machine and what popped up on the screen yep. today and and then, okay, when are they on sale and lining up and mm-hmm. sleeping out or whatever you'd have to do to get the tickets. That whole sort of communal experience, you're, you're, that particular chapter put me back in that time and place. Cool. And I remember coming in, I would take the train in from Jersey and the whole scene on the train, uh, people would have all their beers in the in the paper yeah, bags. Yeah, and everyone's smoking weed. And, and, and we you'd were come only- out of that Penn Station, you'd get for me, I'd come out of Penn Station, I'd go up that escalator, and whoever I was meeting, yes, you'd meet under Ace. You yep. always met, met under Ace before, so everybody had you know, no cell phones, of course. This is your gathering place. You had a meeting spot. Mm-hmm. It was meet under Ace. But even just the sights and the sounds and the smells around the garden, it still comes back to me even this day when I walk by it. Because I remember the people selling the bootleg T-shirts. Yep. I remember the guys would always yell, two-sided, two-sided, because they flip both oh, sides yeah. to I, show you both I sides. I tell the story in my book how one friend of ours who was with us, we were still down in Penn Station. We hadn't come upstairs yet because we got to the city so early, and, and it was cold out. It was December of 77, so we were still down in the station, and a bootleg T-shirt guy came up to us and you know was just really pushing yeah, his yeah. shirts on us, and my friend ended up buying one, gives the guy 10 bucks, the guy takes off and never comes back. And then my friend, he's like crying, and he wanted to go home, and we couldn't let him leave because if he went home by himself, all our parents, our parents would have killed us, you know. And uh, so we couldn't let him leave. So we all had to chip in a couple of dollars each, so he'd be able to buy another shirt right. when we got inside, and uh, that we were able to solve that problem. But uh, yeah, that's what it was like back then. I mean, these guys were just like in. We were a bunch of kids. We didn't know what to do. We were just hoping not to get robbed. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a big like you're. Like, I'm 53. Are you? You're right around 53. So I'll you're be same 54 age. this month. Yeah. Okay. So right. So you're you're 
a little older, like by eight, nine months. But still, you were allowed, your parents were cool with you going to that show with just your friends. That was the first, that was my first concert without parental So you were what, 12, 13? I was 13. 13. Going, I would have been, I was going to be 14 two weeks after that show. Because you and I went to, that was my first show as well. Right. I went on the 16th, you went on the 14th. 14th. I went the first night. I had seen Kiss before. But with uh, my uncle taking us, my brother and I. Oh, you went to an earlier show? Yes. We had seen him, uh, oh God, I want to say it was either February that year of 77. It was, it was earlier. the first time they ever played the Garden. That year. I feel like I saw them at the Coliseum, so I'm not sure when. Okay. I can't remember when, but that was with uh, parental supervision. So it was just a completely different experience. Right, right. Because I, I came in and I remember I, it was my best friend and I and his older sister took us. Right. And then two years later, Dynasty Tour was the first time I went on my own, was allowed to take the train on my own and right. go to the garden, which was like, you said it was a big rite of passage. It oh, was yeah. Like, oh, now we can, freedom, I can always You're go going to the, to the city. city. Like, yeah. that was a big deal back then. You're going to the city. But technically, you still lived in New York City. I lived to in come Queens. Into Manhattan. Yeah, but there's a big difference between where I was in Queens and Manhattan. Right, just, yeah. I live and have lived my whole life, you know, an hour out of the city. But again, big difference. Yeah. I'm in the burbs of Jersey Big difference getting on that train. Sure, especially in the 70s. Yeah. We're talking about Taxi Driver Manhattan. Yeah. Like, from that movie. If you've seen that movie, that that's the Manhattan we're talking about. We're not talking about the Manhattan of 2017 for billionaires. We're talking about the Manhattan of the 70s, where it was a fucking dump. Yeah. The city was a dump and a dangerous, weird place. And uh, um, it wasn't... And in, in a weird way... Probably for a kid, almost maybe safer in a weird way. I, I I I know that might sound crazy, but it almost felt like children weren't being targeted then. Well, yeah, different time. <laughs> I mean, hey, listen, today we uh, I'm I'm on my way in to make my way in, and I'm hearing about a pipe bomb. Uh, yeah. you know, in time in, in Penn Station. Or I would. Ne- I don't think I would ever. If I lived in Queens and my son was 13, is in. There's no way in hell he's getting on a train with his friends and going to the garden to see a show. Not, yeah. not these days. Yeah, and I think about that, too, with two young kids, that they're going to get older and want to do that. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's why I – I mean, now it's different because we have so many venues. Like, now in Jersey, almost everything that plays New York City is going to play Jersey, even right. though it's only a few miles away. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't want to deal with the city, and I get that. I don't. So it, it's a little different. Back then, it was the garden or bust, pretty much. Right. Even I don't even think the Meadowlands at that time. The Meadowlands wasn't even no, open No, not yet. yet. Just the Coliseum. Yeah. So the you had the Coliseum and the, and the Garden. That's it. So anyway, yeah, and I wish, like I said to, I said earlier, it, it, that meeting under Ace thing was such an iconic thing for us. It was such an important thing. Beyond, just as rock fans, to know we had representation oh, in yeah. Madison Square Garden. And it was such a two, and I, I touch on this in the story as well, about how being a 13-year-old Kiss fan and wearing a Kiss shirt to school, and the the older kids, and when I say older, I'm talking about the 15- and 16-year-olds who thought Kiss was for babies, and they were, you know, with their Zeppelin shirts or Pink Floyd shirts oh, yeah. and Aerosmith shirts, and I liked all those bands too, but I loved Kiss, and I would get, literally get beat up. I'd get knocked down and have my books kicked oh, out yeah. from under my arm and all kinds of crap all the time because I was a Kiss fan, and... Uh, me and my friends who were into Kiss uh, at that time, at the you know the age from twelve, thirteen, fourteen, 
um, we took a ton of shit. We were the minority back then, for sure. Oh, God, yeah. So to have Ace Freely's photo up was just, it really was, we wore that like a badge of honor. Like, haha, look, I don't see Jimmy Page up there. I love Jimmy Page, but it would be kind of like, yeah, it's Ace Freely, motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're <laughs> totally right. And, and people can't relate to that now with what Kiss has become such pop culture and looked at so differently than what it was shortly after that 77 Yeah, we period. were the underdogs We were, point. we were, and, and it's probably the reason why people wonder why Kiss fans are so passionate and so loyal. Sure. Because if you went through that- Mm-hmm. If it was I, years of hazing. Yeah, if I wasn't, <laughs> I've said this a thousand times, if I wasn't 6'2 and a big guy, I would have gotten my ass kicked daily in well, high I was like, and I was like five foot and weighed about 90 pounds, yeah. so I did get my ass kicked. I was thre- they threatened it, but they never did it because right. I was bigger than most of them. But if I wasn't, I would have absolutely gotten my ass kicked. I, the last story on Kiss, and we're talking about other stuff in the book. This is a true story. I graduated high school in 1982. I uh, started. Get, I got my first car senior year. It's first year you get to drive, sure. right? And I was defiant, like I am to this day, and have been my whole life. The stuff I like, I couldn't give a shit if people, other people, think it's cool or not. Exactly, I couldn't care less. I'm defiant about it. I, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. If you like it, that's all that should matter. So, man, eighty one, eighty two, my last couple years in high school. What is more uncool than Kiss? You're talking Elder. You're talking Unmasked. Uh-huh. And I was still, I didn't care. I wore the shirt. I had the notebook sticker. I was like, you know, they right. could spit at me. I didn't care. So I get my first car, and I put a Kiss bumper sticker on the car. <laughs> there was a guy, a kid, who was so appalled that I would have a Kiss bumper sticker on my car that he attempted to hit it with his own car and ram <laughs> my God. his that's that's what I was dealing with wow and ram his car into my back bumper because I had the balls to put a kiss bumper wow that's what was going on in Jersey yeah wow it was, it was dark yeah it was dark shit think about acting against your own self interest oh my like, god I'm gonna destroy my own car right you didn't I care hate yeah. that so much exactly <laughs> Smart guy. What's he up to these days? I think he's a landscaper. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to go hit his trucks when yeah. I see him. Uh, we got to take a break. We're going to be right back. More with Scotty, and we'll work your calls in as well. A few more stories from the book. Again, the book is out. Uh, we're just scratching the surface here. And, of course, Scott and I get going on Kiss. Forget about it. Access all areas. It is out everywhere tomorrow. Makes a great holiday gift. I'm sure you got some signings and stuff, too, you might want to mention. Yeah, yeah. First one is at uh, Bookends in New Jersey, Ridgewood, New Jersey, tomorrow night. Tomorrow Tuesday. night. Wednesday, I'm here at The Strand uh, in uh, New York City. And then Thursday night, I'm in Huntington, Long Island, and I'm having a total brain fart right now at the, at the name of the- Is it book review? Uh, I'm going to get the name of it right now so I could mention it. I've done all back. three of those yes. on my- I think it is book review. Yeah, yes. I've done great, all great stories, Sorry, actually. it's been a crazy week. Yeah. All right, so let's hit a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with Scotty on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hope you guys have been checking out History's new scripted drama series, Nightfall. Wednesdays, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. It's set in a medieval France that is uh, tangled in politics and conflict. Really cool stuff. One headstrong and courageous Templar Knight Landry will lead his order of warrior monks on a life or death mission to find the lost Holy Grail. Control the Grail. Control the world. 
Nightfall focuses on themes such as belief, sacrifice, politics, love, power, and revenge. Nightfall goes deep into the clandestine world of this legendary brotherhood of warrior monks to find out who these knights were, how they lived, and what they died believing. you got to check it out. Nightfall. This season takes viewers inside the medieval politics and warfare of the Knights Templar, the most powerful, wealthy, and mysterious military order of the Middle Ages who were entrusted with protecting Christianity's most precious relics. You do not want to miss it. Be sure to check out Nightfall Wednesdays, 10, 9 central, only on History. This is is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Sam Kinison story I found to be uh, very entertaining as well and and as bizarre as you would expect from a guy <laughs> from Sam Kinison. Um, I don't I don't want to give all the stories away in the book because obviously you want people to buy it and read them, but just right. so you can jump around to some of the things. You've got a, a thing with Kirk Hammett in here. You've got a thing about playing uh, poker on a VH1 Classic tournament where you knew nothing about playing poker. Right. I remember that specifically because I was working at VH1 Classic at the time, and I was pissed because I I was, I was, wanted to be the one that went there and did the coverage. Ah, okay. And I didn't. They sent the other host, but because it was just all my friends. You know, it was yeah. you and Ace, and it would have been great, and I love Vegas like you. Yeah. Talking about how much you love Vegas. But um, there's so many of these stories yeah, that, in here. That weird uh, anomaly of going out and playing that poker tournament with Ace and Dusty Hill and Vinnie Paul and Sully Erna and um and I won that and that turned into like almost a 5-year professional poker career. Do you still and play? And that's why there's, there's like that story's in two parts in in the book um because it was just such a crazy time in my life where I became a professional poker player. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a time in your life when you talk about in the book where you almost became a professional doorman at a club. Yes, exactly. You worked for a night I did as a for doorman. one night, yes. Where was... you actually at a trendy club in New York. Because there was a period in your life, which you talked about in your first book as well, where you actually went off the rails a little bit, yeah. right? Like every night out and drinking hard and living hard. And all most of the of 90s into the early 2000s, yeah. Right. Pretty much. And you talk about the 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 club scene in New York and you got caught up in that a little bit and yep. that you actually at one point had a was did did I forget if you reveal in the book is it actually Lorne Michaels kid that you turned away no it wasn't well he was he was BSing the whole time but uh, yeah I always found the the kind of the hierarchy at the door at some of these clubs to be fascinating a lot of times I would go to these fancy pants clubs and kind of just hang out because my friends would work the door and I would hang out and watch this play go down every night of people like doing anything to try and get into these places and i'd be thinking like it's really not that great in there the drinks are really expensive (laughs) (laughs) and the thing you talk about is the fact that in your experience when people would come up and say the i'm on the list there really was never a list there's never a list so so it really was just up to the discretion of whoever's working the door if they wanted to let you in most of the time based on what you looked like based on your attitude they knew you attitude yeah yeah are you right do you look yeah do you Look right for the room. You know, I don't. I I don't know. 
You know, all I know is buddies of had- ours, my friend my friend Dominic and I, Dominic DeLuca, sure. we had friends that worked at a lot of these joints, and it just worked out great for us because we get to hang out and meet all kinds of weird people and generally drink for free, and that's why we were hanging out in these places. If it was other places, I would have been hanging out there, but, you know, the... the um, the uh, sway of free booze in New York City and Manhattan was always a big motivator. So when you go, like, you, you, you talk about Vegas in here a little bit, and I love Vegas to this day. I want to move there someday. And and I I think about uh, when I go there, and I, I was thinking about, like, I walk through those casinos now, and uh, the whole club scene and EDM scene and everything that goes on there is massive. And it's, yeah. it's nothing of, really of any interest to me at all. But I look at it from the outside, and sometimes I walk by and I see those lines people trying to get in and I see the guys with the computers of the clipboards. Uh-huh. Do you think there's really a list there or do in you think- Vegas I I'm sure there's probably some kind of a list because you got to figure rollers. high rollers yeah. are you know their name must be somewhere because they're getting into those joints. So I, I got to assume there's some kind of list at those places. You're fighting to get into a place where you can get charged like $20 for a beer. Yeah, you're you're trying, you're to, trying yeah, to get trying to get in yeah. for the right to pay exactly. for that. Exactly. You talk about anthrax being unmarried with children. Yes. And the biggest question that you get all the time about that, which is... Did you sleep with Kelly Bundy? And the answer to that is... <laughs> oh, I'm not going to give away the answer. Well, the answer to that but, is interesting how you, you phrase yeah, it. Yeah. See, I, can, I, I talk great, about... It's I, great the way you talk about it. I tell a story it. because that question is not that simple if you really think about it. Because Kelly Bundy doesn't actually exist. So when you think about it that way, it makes that question very strange. Did you read Sebastian Bach's book? I have not read his book. He, no. I heard. I used to hear stories about that way back when. And I, like you, I've known him and those guys forever, and I never picked up on any of that. Now he didn't sleep with her, right? At least he swears that in the book. Uh-huh. But he did have a relationship with her, right? I remember hearing rumors about that. Yeah, um, like a million years ago. Show but. up at Skid Row. I mean, a whole thing. He talks right. about it in detail in his book. So right. it's nothing. Cool. Yeah. So, so if you want more on on Kelly Bundy, but that's not Kelly Bundy. That's Christina Applegate. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, the Kirk Hammett thing, which is you, 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 you basically break into Kirk Hammett's house. Yes. And jam. <laughs> yeah. Something I'm, I still get a little sweaty about because it was such a, that's a horrible thing to do to a friend. <laughs> but you know, you can't. It was, it was me, Charlie, Frankie, Lars, James, and Kirk had been with us earlier in the night, and um, we all got pretty tanked up, and we're looking for a place to go play music, and Kirk's house was the closest place at the time. <laughs> and the last thing, because there's there's a, a million stories in this book again you can get it tomorrow because i'm going to give the rest of the show to you guys on the phone so we'll take some calls for scott the last thing in the book as far not the last thing in the book but the last thing i'll ask you about that i read the chapter on which i had no idea about is your evening with madonna Mm, right which the funniest thing is that when madonna answers the door yeah fix up she's wearing a see-through shirt like we get to our apartment and, uh, yeah, she's wearing a completely sheer top, so it's literally just boobs <laughs> right there. And, I look, I, I was a massive fan of hers, still am, and uh, I always thought she was quite attractive. And I was very, very nervous to, like, be meeting her for the first time, and uh, she opens the door, and basically her, her boobs are just there. And you're trying to be cool and not just stare, and you're trying to make eye contact, and... 
it's like her boobs were talking to me like you can't you, you can't not look at us what are you crazy like <laughs> I'm laughing because do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah. Did you see the latest episode? No, with no, the, I'm, I'm Oh, you didn't see the sign season. language one? No, no. Oh, when you watch the episode, <laughs> basically, well, watch okay, it. I'll watch but, it. But yeah. there's, a, there's a very relatable story to what you're talking about. Cool. Because they hire somebody to do uh, sign language. Right. Who, who has huge, huge boobs. <laughs> right. And distracts everybody from what's supposed to be going on, and Larry gets all screwed up over it. That's such a great show. But you went, interestingly enough, you went with Madonna. You knew her because of her, um, uh, well, at now time, manager. At the time, Guy O'Siri right. was running her record label. She had just, Maverick. like, started Maverick Records. And, and Guy, who was already a friend of mine, um, was he was the guy running Maverick Records. And you went with him and her to to see Rage Against the Machine. Yes, at the limelight. Before they were signed because yeah. everybody was trying to sign them. Yes, I think it was like a showcase, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure, but they were playing the limelight and, and they were trying to get Rage Against the Machine to sign with Maverick and we went. And uh, I had seen them once before at that point at a small club in L.A., you know, even before that and had already been blown away by them. And then getting to see them at the limelight, standing next to Madonna and... I don't know if you remember, there was those little kind of areas above the stage at the limelight yeah, where course. you could watch from. And uh, I saw a lot of people down in the crowd. They see me up there, and they're like looking at like I'm standing next to Madonna. And it was kind of cool because people started chanting anthrax and stuff like that. And, and I mean, you're like, yeah, they're not chanting Madonna. Yeah, Look exactly. At you. Yeah, it's it's awesome. like, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what Madonna's take on Rage Against the Machine was? She really, she thought they were great. So she wanted to sign. Oh, they, they didn't wanted, end up signing. To yeah, Maverick, they, they obviously. didn't get they didn't get him. But obviously, Guy and Madonna both thought they were great. Yeah. And my 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 biggest memory of me and you at the limelight was UFO reunion tour. Oh yeah, walk on water. Yes, and we the place was packed, and you you uh, you couldn't see because we were all on the right. floor. And at one point, you jumped on my back. <laughs> I'm like who the hell's on my back? I turned around, it was you. You're trying to see over everybody. That was an amazing night. I'll never forget that. All right, we got a we got about 20 minutes left, and we're going to finish up with Scotty and with your calls about anything you want. He's got a a plethora of stories in his book, which you can buy tomorrow, called Access All Areas, Scott Ian, and check it out. Uh, just just scratching the surface on some of the stories he tells in this book. We'll uh, we'll finish up with you guys on the phones about maybe got some Anthrax questions. We mentioned that DVD coming out in in April. Uh, maybe some new music coming soon or something. Maybe thinking about it a little bit. Yeah, um, there's some ideas kicking around. Charlie recently sent some killer riffs i heard them and in my opinion they're awesome <laughs> and it makes it very exciting moving forward you know i always kind of get a little bit of anxiety after we make a record and and then you go out on tour and a year goes by and you start to think all right we're gonna do this again and did we use up our quota of riffs like you know for all kings is a great record and where are we at now and then charlie sent some riffs over and i'm like all right Next record's going to be fucking amazing. Well, if you if it continues on the trend of the last couple, Worship Music, For All Kings, unbelievable Anthrax records among, I think, the best Thank you, you ever made. So Thank you. hopefully that trend continues. We'll, uh, and if Tony Iommi doesn't run out of riffs, you could always call exactly. Tony. I mean, yeah. he's got a bank of them. You could always borrow a few yes. from him. There is the to. Kill Thrax tour, too. We go oh, yeah, out that's again. Right. Yeah. Kill Thrax 2, the first run with us and Kill Switch Engage. It, it went so well. We're getting a sequel. That starts the end of January. Of course, you can find all those dates at anthrax.com. 
All right. Scott Ian sitting in with me right now. His book is out tomorrow. Access All Areas is the name of it. Buy it anywhere you buy books. A great holiday gift as well. Perfect time to release this thing. So that's cool. We'll grab a couple quick calls here before we uh, have to wrap up the show and let Scott get out of here. Taking uh, his son to see Big Show tonight here in, on Broadway, right? Yeah. I, I guess I won't say the name of it just because <laughs> yeah. it could be weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we're going to a big Broadway show There you tonight. go. First for Revel, right? Yes. All right. Very cool. Well, you guys have fun in the city. Great time of year here. Let's uh, say hello to Sean, who is in Wyoming. Hey, Sean, what's going on? Not much. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey. Hi. Scott, I want to tell you, I've seen you guys a hundred times, but- the most memorable show I've ever seen and probably the most energetic show I've ever seen in my entire life was put on. You guys headlined a little tiny club with 200 people in it in Fort Collins, Colorado oh. on September 12th, 2001. Yeah. I remember it well. Yeah, the you night after 9-11. That place, yeah, you guys blew that place apart. It was the energy release we all needed. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, we... We uh we were in um oh my gosh uh I'm totally brain farting on where we were on 9/11 right now. Anyway, we didn't know what to do after 9/11 cuz we were on a string of shows heading west to meet with Judas Priest in Los Angeles where we were about to start a run of dates with Judas Priest. And um so 9/11 happens and we're like, "Well, what do we do?" <laughs> Priest was in Mexico at the time. They couldn't get out. Everything was just, nobody knew what was going on. You mm-hmm. couldn't fly anywhere. You couldn't do anything. So we made the decision, well, let's head west to the next gig, which was in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, we got there, and, of course, the promoter said to us, I totally understand if you guys want to cancel tonight. It, you know, And our attitude was, let's play. Anyone who comes out, people need people need a release tonight. Yeah. They need to be entertained. And we did. We played that show in Fort Collins, and it was crazy. It was a crazy night. And then we all found our way home the next day. We rest, obviously, the rest of the dates were canceled. And, but uh, that Fort Collins show was really something special. And then a couple months later, I put together the New York Steel show, which you guys played, which yes. was the anniversary, the 16th anniversary of, which just a couple weeks right. ago. Cause that we, was were in right Lincoln, we were in Lincoln, Nebraska, actually, on 9-11. When I, but I, what I remember about that, and I was telling you guys that uh, at the time, was that when I wanted you guys on the bill, and of course you guys were, wanted to play, and what you did end up playing, but I actually got a lot of pressure to not have you guys on, right, and I had a fight to have you on because the band was called Anthrax. Right. And of course that, for people who have seen photos, you came out on stage in that night, everybody wearing jumpsuits that said, we are not changing our name. Right. People have often asked me what that picture was about and had to put put it in context of that time and place. I mean, I actually had the people I was working with on the show saying they should play under a different name. I'm like, no. I mean, it's ridiculous. The whole reason why I wanted to put that show on was because that world of music had been excluded from the benefits and things that were happening. And I was like, we need a release too. We need to have our moment. So that's that's something that I will... uh, I will never forget uh, happening. Steve in New York. Hey, Steve, you're almost Scott Ian. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, listen, I'm glad that your house uh, was spared here in the fire, but I want to know what's the fire drill look like at the Ian house? What has to go for guitars, <laughs> comic books, and books? Well, obviously, uh, uh, physical safety of you know my son, my wa- my wife, and I obviously comes first. But uh, I did have 
I had a bunch of guitars in the house, and uh, Anthrax stores their gear at a place in Los Angeles, like a place that does that. They store bands stuff. So I did have them come with a van, and I had all the guitars taken out the day before. We thought we were going to have to evacuate. And uh, and then, yeah, it's basically just important paperwork, and it was like a bunch of Stephen King books that I have, and we were going to take a bunch of photos personal photos and stuff like that. I mean, you can only take so much, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, And a couple of suitcases yeah. filled with clothes in case you're going to be out for a couple of days. Yeah, man, that's what horrible. About your, what about your comics? Judge Dredd, Mr. Monster, and that Co- Comics are all in storage. They've been in storage for years. There you go, Steve. The comics are safe. Thank you for yes. calling. Thanks for listening. Steve in Kentucky. Go ahead, Steve. Hey, Scott, uh, you're one of my childhood heroes. Uh, I was 12 years old when Attack of the Killer Bees came out. My dad bought me the T-shirt. I had a hat. He used to piss off my fifth-grade teacher that I wore it. I was always running around saying, not, not. And then <laughs> right on. I had, a, I had a cousin, had a boyfriend. He was a real pussy, and he was like, anthrax sucks. You need to listen to White Line. I was like, no way, anthrax rules. But anyways, I grew up big Kiss fan. I know you guys are big Kiss fans. Have you guys ever thought of doing a show in Kiss make? playing Kiss tunes for like maybe half a show. In Kiss makeup playing Kiss tunes. I think Stone Temple Pilots did that. Well, they were in the makeup. I don't know if they were playing Kiss songs, yeah. but they did wear makeup. I mean, we've point. covered many Kiss songs throughout our years. And we've even as recently as uh, last summer, we played Chicago Open Air on the day Kiss headline. And we played Parasite in our set. You did? Yeah, knowing that they weren't playing it in their set. But, yeah, and we, we told those guys. I think we told, like, Gene when we saw him. Like, you know, we did Paris. Like, you did? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and it went over really well, too. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. You did, you've did. you done Parasite. You did Watching You, we didn't We've done you? Watching You. We've done, oh, my God, I'm going to forget now. Um, there's more. Love Her All I Can. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's one more. And then we also did the most obscure one, and you can actually find it on YouTube. We covered the song from the Mego Kiss Dolls commercial. <laughs> Kiss, that's the name. Kiss. That we actually covered that. It's on it's on YouTube somewhere. It's like thirty seconds long. Yeah, yeah. We did that song. Now who do you have to clear that with? That was the reason why it never came out on a CD back in the day. Because uh, we even, uh, Gene worked with us on it. They were trying to find out who actually had the rights to that song and that commercial, and nobody could nobody could find it. So we ended up not being able to officially release it. I'd love to know how Gene let that go, that he doesn't own that. Yeah, maybe it's going to come yeah. out on the vault. Yeah, who knows? Maybe For it's 50 in grand, the, you well, get I, an official I don't know that they. It. I don't know that they wrote that song. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Find a, find a way to... He, he didn't draw the cover of Rock and Roll Over either. That's, you still had to go to him and ask true. him. That's true. That's true. So, yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> Let's talk to Jeff, who's in Seattle. Hey, Jeff, you're on with Scott Ian. Hey, Eddie. Hey, Scott. Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, the... We've, we've come for you all record. Thank and you. A couple of things that I've, I've always uh, enjoyed about it is first hearing Dimes' voice every time I play Cadillac Rockbox. Yeah, yeah, so, for sure. Uh, two things. Two things I, I want to ask, and I can hang up and let you let you answer. Um, what's with the inside joke with the Desmond C. Child? We music lovers know who Desmond Child is, and uh, G Money. I guess you can explain. And also. Uh, how did you get Roger Daltrey to sing back, background <laughs> vocals on uh, on that record? So thanks for everything, and I'll, I'll listen to your answer. The Desmond C. Child and G. Money stuff, that was basically what 
it was called back then was dimebonics. Daryl had all kinds of sayings that made sense to him, <laughs> and uh, and you know sometimes made sense to, if you know if you were in his inner circle and even if you were in the outer circle. But sometimes those were like nicknames he had for people, and I, I can't actually tell you what it exactly mean. But it it was definitely a kiss reference. Because uh, as most people probably know, Daryl was a, also a massive Kiss fan. Sure. So uh, yeah, the fact that he would throw around like Desmond Child's name as like a term of endearment for somebody it was it was just dimes a dime bonics. That's the only way I can explain it. And Roger Daltrey, that literally was because of my wife Pearl and uh, her mom. I, I guess they right. Your mom knew Roger and. Yeah. Somebody made a call. Yeah, and we ended up well no, we ended up going out to dinner. We had dinner with him a couple of times and uh I just couldn't believe I was sitting at dinner with with Roger Daltrey, right? And I just got up the nerve to kind of ask him we were working on the record at the time and he was like nobody ever asks me to do anything. Like I'd like to do more stuff, but nobody asks. I'm like it's because everyone's afraid. Cuz you're Roger Daltrey. Yeah, cuz you're in the who. You're Roger Daltrey. Right. And uh, yeah, so I I asked him, and he said yes. It was insane. <laughs> hey, before we go, because we're going to be out of time here in a second, you mentioned Pearl sitting here, and and uh, you guys did that Motor Sister record, which I absolutely loved. Yes. You want to do that again? You want to do another? You one? You never know. You it's, think? Yeah, I mean Pearl's finishing her own record right now. Uh, she's finishing a Pearl record, so that's kind of the priority in that world. Really, right now, is for her to get that record done and out next year and, and get out and tour that. But mm-hmm. you never know. Motor Sister could happen again someday. That's a great record for people that didn't uh, that didn't uh, check out that record out. Check that out. It's called Ride, and I, I loved that record. Cool. Man. I, I really, love it, really too. Really good record. <laughs> and, and Pearl with a follow-up to, uh, wait, let me get the title, Little Immaculate White Fox. Yes. Oh, man, I pulled that out. <laughs> it's a long title, Pearl. I'm trying to remember <laughs> But a follow-up coming soon. Yes. All right. Well, we look forward to that as well. Produced by Jay Rustin, your favorite producer. My, Jay is the man. Jay is my favorite. He Everything Jay does sounds good to me. My thanks to Scotty Ian of Anthrax. Check out his new book, Access All Areas, which is out right now. Rock and roll road stories, a few of which we just touched on in the conversation you just heard with Scott. Appreciate him coming by. New episode next Thursday, as usual. Free via podcastone.com and iTunes. Have a very Merry Christmas, everybody. Enjoy the holidays, and I'll see you guys next Thursday for another all new episode.
Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers Podcast with Jay Moore, Sessions with Randy Jackson, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, The Harbaugh's Podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sound of Success, The Dick Enberg Podcast, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.